Welcome to the Back to Square Quan podcast with your host Chong and Kedrick. This is a podcast where we will have conversations about training, nutrition, and philosophy, taking you back to square one. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Back to Square Quan podcast. Today we have a very special guest for all our listeners, and uh, he's known as. The guy that gets multiple uh, hate comments on YouTube for his own podcast on stuff. Apparently, he doesn't like signs. We have no idea why we have him on here, even though uh, we we may think that his uh, his company or his podcast, Stronger by Science, may be just a front for his actual uh, secret desires. Welcome, uh, the one and only Greg Knuckles, to the podcast. Oh, thank thanks for having me on. Yeah, so Greg, I know I've uh, definitely overinflated your your CV there just now. So perhaps you can provide uh, any form of correction, or and maybe let our listeners know a little more about who you are, what do you do, and yeah, just take it from there. Yeah, uh, well, I I guess I only have one one correction. Uh, to be clear, the name Stronger by Science podcast uh, is purely meant to be ironic. Um, science is fake. No one, no one ever got strong from PubMed. Uh, you just, you know, it's a, it's it's a pretty clear bit. Uh, and I I don't understand why so many people f- fail to pick up on that sarcasm. Mm, I know, like it's 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 pretty straightforward, right? Like we don't really need the science to get stronger. You know, the evidence is there. It's set in stone. Yeah, just. <laughs> You just you just lift weights and uh, just train a little bit harder every single session, right? Just do and just repeat, rinse, rinse, repeat, and that's basically how you do it. Who needs science anyway? Well, yeah. To to paraphrase the great Bill O'Reilly, uh, weights go up, weights go down. Can't explain that. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and people listening may be wondering like why I went to to grad school for exercise science, and. and in in the industry, that's what we call committing to a bit. Mm. Um, you know, lo- lots of people will make jokes. Most people aren't willing to invest two years of their life into a joke. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's pretty much all you need to know about me, I reckon. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you managed to leave um, you know tweet them up and not commit. Unlike Kedrick, to... who wants to oh, take yeah, the take oh. the joke. Uh, a, a running joke, a decade, <laughs> actually. How long has your joke been, Kendrick? Me, I, I have no idea. My life this time pretty much is a joke. So, uh, and yes. <laughs> so, it, it, it is quite hard to count or quantify the... Yeah. But I, I, I think that something our listeners would be really, like, intrigued to know about yourself is... I know that in the popular, like, online fitness scene, you... You wear many hats. You have uh, a lot of expertise regarding different different topics, primarily in uh, dissemination or and looking at research and stuff like that. Perhaps you can maybe share about what you actually did in grad school because you mentioned grad school just now. So you know, for the listeners out there, you usually go to grad school. You do something really specific, right? Uh, then, what did you uh, look at during your time in grad school? Yeah, so my uh, the the topic of my my thesis research was um, sex differences in fatigability during resistance training. Um, 
So, yeah, I, th- that that's the short version, and then the long version is like thirty minutes, and I figure that that's uh, that th- this probably isn't the ideal medium for that. But yeah, the the biggest thing I was interested in was was uh, sex differences and fatigability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I mean, obviously, I know a little bit about your research because we we've had chats along uh, mm-hmm. while you were doing it. After you finished, we we, we had like. We catch up like maybe once a year or something like that, uh, and but our listeners out there might not have an idea on that specific area because like I said you wear many hats. You know you have uh, you blog on Stronger by Science, you have the Stronger by Science podcast, you also are in involved uh, in the mass research review. So you, you do wear many many different hats. I do think that right now since you you ha- you potentially have multiple different areas of like research what is your maybe your current uh interest right uh when it comes to research it could also your current interest could be due to your personal interest or maybe just like uh responsibilities uh of your job like cool i'm allocated this kind of research to look at at the journal suite for mass every single <laughs> month so obligated it, it's not something yeah, i enjoy so it could be, <laughs> Yeah, it could be personal or it could be an obligation. So what is your current like uh sort of like area of interest for like exercise science research? Well, yeah, I mean, so um since since this is my job now, my my areas of interest largely have to overlap, I think, with uh with what I'm doing professionally. Um I I don't have that much time just for pleasure reading anymore. Um so you know, now, now we're, we're doing a hard ad pivot, uh, putting out a nutrition app soon. I saw that. Uh, I it's going up to be to called it. macro factor. Oh, yeah. hell yeah. Uh, anyway, so, so by extension, um, I've been, most of the reading I've been doing, uh, relates to human metabolism, um, which honestly bums me out a little bit. Cause I don't, care about that quite as much <laughs> as you might have, as you might have to, picked up from greg like he he's one who just likes to lift weights you know metabolism is it isn't part eat, of getting stronger and eat. and eat yes we'll talk about that a little bit he makes mm. great food yeah so sorry to interrupt but continue yeah so um to, to be clear for for anyone listening that's like well if if this guy's just now reading a lot about human metabolism why would i uh, uh sign up for his nutrition app um Eric Trexler, other guy involved, that is his area of expertise. Um, but since, you know, since we're developing it together, I don't want to be completely dead weight in the process. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been mostly, mostly learning a lot about human metabolism recently, uh, just to make sure that, uh, all of our, our algorithms are, are tuned just right. And, the the thing that's like a little bit frustrating about it is currently i mean currently primarily what we're doing is trying to make sure that our our predictive algorithms work as well as they can just based on like what is known in the literature currently um but what one of the people involved in the app is uh like a artificial intelligence and machine learning researcher it's like once we get a lot of users we're we're going to tweak all of all of our equations anyways 
based on the actual data we have coming in to fine tune them further. Uh, so yeah, doing, uh, doing what someone might call a, a completely unreasonable amount of work, uh, reteaching myself little bits of calculus that I haven't had to, to mess around with in the past decade, um, to, to dial in, uh, equations and algorithms that will probably only exist in their current state for probably like the first month of the app's life. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, we, we are nothing if not, uh, excessive when we undertake a project. So yeah, that's, that's the biggest thing I've been up to recently. That's, that's really cool, Greg. And yeah, definitely looking forward to when that comes out. You know, I'm sure that as the world evolves, my fitness, I always use this analogy to people, you know, one day my fitness pal is going to shut down eventually. It's going to be taken over by the overlords. Um, and we definitely need another platform, um, not just to count macros, but potentially do a little bit more than just finding foods. Um, but I guess uh, in, in the, the question for you there, and obviously, you know, Greg being obviously playing a big role in mass alongside all your other colleagues there as well. Um, you mentioned about relearning, uh, particularly metabolism and, and, and things like that in relation to the app. As someone who's already gone through grad school, obviously you had that big experience of like studying and learning. And now we're kind of getting back mm -hmm. into learning again. Like how... Could you maybe talk a little bit about your relationship with, I guess, learning? Uh, for context, Mass is like a really good platform as well for those who want to learn a little bit more about strength training in general. But what's your experience like from learning now compared to learning before? Is it the same, different? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I think it's basically the same. Um, I... I learn and retain things pretty easily. Um, and when I'm like re-exposed to something that I had previously learned, uh, generally my, my memory is jogged pretty quickly. Um, I'm sure that will change with age, but, but currently everything's still running fairly smoothly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if, if anything, I think it's probably easier now just because I, uh, know more about how to how to vet sources and read research so you know that's that's certainly helpful um i i don't know i i feel like maybe i'm not fully understanding the question you're asking oh, i mean well i guess to give you context um when an individual um first goes into like college and stuff like that um they have this i guess potentially false sense of security or insecurity about what they're getting themselves into and they might think mm, like oh first yeah. year is going to be really difficult or second year is going to be like the worst but then coming out of that experience and getting that you know let's be honest here that degree which doesn't really mean anything when it comes out to the real world um and then now mm -hmm. actually learning i guess in your case not just for the sake of learning but more so learning because hey i'm actually learning to develop an app not for the sake of getting mm -hmm. just a piece of document that I don't know what will happen, you know, five years later. Like, do you feel that mm -hmm. it drives you? Does does I guess does it make the learning process a little bit more palatable, knowing like there's an actual tangible outcome versus going to grad school where you're like, I don't know what life will be after that. There's a dream, but you know. 
No, so so that that's a good question. Uh, and actually, my my grad school experience was was different than that because I, I did undergrad and then I was you know out working for four or five years before I went back to grad school. Um, so when I did go to grad school, th- there was less of that unknown, like, oh, what am I going to do with this in my life? Like, I knew why I was going to grad school and what I wanted to get out of it. So it, it was like a more directed thing. Um, but, but thinking back to undergrad, I, I think two big takeaways, uh, and two things that I don't know, I, I don't have a good way to frame the things I'm about to say, but two main points. One, uh, I think something that helped me out a lot was uh, when I when I went to undergrad initially, I wasn't an exercise science major. Uh, I was a uh, I was a history and religion major. And the thing about both of those um, both of those courses of study is it's like ninety eight percent reading. <laughs> so you know, like a. Uh, it, so I remember when I switched to exercise science, when I switched my major, um, you know, we'd get assigned like a, a research paper to write and be like, ah, hey, you're going to write about this thing. Like, you know, let's say like pick a pick some disease state and uh, write seven pages about uh, exercise prescription for people with some particular disease and like make sure you have at least 10 sources or something like that. Uh, I, I remember like the other people in my class would be like seven pages. What the fuck? 10 sources. Where am I going to find those? Um, and that, that seemed like a relatively large assignment for, for the other people in my exercise science classes. But it's just like, dude, as a history major, a pretty common assignment would be like, all right, so you're going to write 25 pages about, uh, gender roles in the workforce in the 1950s in France. Uh, and you need to have at least like eight books to cite and like 27 newspaper clippings, like, you know how to use the, the microfiche in the, in the library. And, uh, yeah, if, if you need to get like an interlibrary loan from Paris, like make sure you get on that quick. So you have time to write it. And by the way, it's due next week. Um, so that, that was just like normal ass history stuff. (laughs) Um, and so I, I think that, and you know, I, basically finished the major <laughs> i uh i got to the senior capstone class and then realized like oh shit i don't i don't actually want any of the jobs i can get with this degree um cuz i i don't plan ahead for anything uh and so that's when i switched to exercise science but uh f- from going through that experience and, and like religion is the same thing like it's people reading old books and and writing about old books um but yeah so i i think that that helped a lot with learning basically anything because now like my default assumption is like, Oh, you know, I want to learn about something new. Uh, I don't think like, Hey, I'm going to try to find a review paper that will break this down for me. My assumption going into it is like, well, okay, I'm going to spend about four or five solid days reading several hundred pages of material about this thing for me to feel like I've barely gotten my feet wet. Um, and, and I think that that is not a reasonable expectation for someone whose full-time job isn't creating content. But I think that that's more or less what should be expected if if that is primarily what you do. 
Um, and so I think, I think having a, a history bra- background helped a lot with that. Cause that's, you know, that, that was, uh, <laughs> the, the research process, like, you know, not like doing research in a lab, but like researching a topic, um, you, you learn that you should expect that to be a, a really intensive and time, time consuming process. And I, I think a lot of people in, in fitness don't go into learning about a new topic with that expectation. Um, let's see the other thing. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, um, you know, maybe not necessarily knowing what, what you need to learn and what you need to retain when you're going through formal education. I I think that's definitely true. Um, uh, I was never the type of person who would sit in class and think like, you know, wh- where am I going to use this in, in the real world or whatever? Like I, I remember, uh, I, I remember kids in like math class growing up being like, when am I ever going to have to use algebra in the real world? Um, like algebra's, I don't know. I think it's really useful. Um, but anyway, I, I was never that person. I was always the type of person that just assumed like, well, you know, I, <laughs> I've got to get the grades. So, uh, who cares if I'm ever going to use it? I need to learn it anyways. But, um, when I did go to grad school, it was, it was quite a bit different, um, because I did already have a career track, right? So I, I knew what I needed to know for my day-to-day job, you know, my day-to-day life, uh, and what the gaps were and things that I really needed to, to fill in. Um, and so, like, I, I do think that that helped a lot because then I did know, like, well, okay, like, these classes I should study more for because I know I'm going to <laughs> to use this stuff later. Um, so I, I need to really, really master it. And these other classes, like, yep, I'm taking this as a pass-fail. I don't care about the letter grade. Uh, I know that I don't need to know this stuff, you know? Um, so I, I do think that that helped with, with kind of like the focusing process. Um, in like, yeah, then when you get out in the world, I I think that a, a useful distinction that, uh, that, that anyone who's done both research and has worked in industry is aware of, um, is that there's a difference between like science and application to some degree uh like you know ultimately you can know you can have an enormous amount of book knowledge but if you can't actually apply that in a way that that is useful to people and will help them get the results they want it's it's not good for much um and so i i do think that that uh that influences the way that I that I read and interpret research to some degree. So a, a good example of that is uh, something that's getting a lot of attention in the research right now, which I think is really cool, um, is ischemic preconditioning. So uh, essentially what that is, is like if your listeners have heard of blood flow restriction training, it's a similar concept, except instead of only including venous blood flow, you're including arterial blood flow. And instead of doing it during training, the way that ischemic preconditioning works is you'll occlude all blood flow to your limbs for five minutes and then take the wraps off for five minutes, let yourself reperfuse, and then repeat that three times. Um, 
And that, so the, the history of, of, uh, ischemic preconditioning is, um, both somewhat gruesome and also pretty interesting. So, uh, it, it was initially discovered by, I, I'm blanking on the researcher's name, but he was doing heart attack research in dogs, um, and had a couple sets of dogs open their chest up and did ischemic uh, preconditioning for one of their um, uh, one of their cardiac arteries for you know several rounds, five minutes occlusion, five minutes reperfusion, um, and the other group of dogs just opened up their chest for the same period of time, but didn't do the ischemic preconditioning, and then just mechanically gave the dogs a heart attack. Um, so cut off blood flow to that particular, um, that particular artery for 40 minutes and then look to see how much of the myocardium was damaged in the ischemically preconditioned dogs versus the ones that, that hadn't been. And the ischemic preconditioning, uh, like pretty dramatically reduced the area of necrotic tissue in the hearts of the dogs that had been exposed to ischemic preconditioning. Uh, and, and that was like back in the eighties. That was, that was pretty old research, but more recently it's, it's been applied to uh, resistance training performance. So, you know, if you do ischemic preconditioning for your legs before a squat or a leg press workout, will that help you complete more reps, have better strength endurance, and possibly even recover faster from training by uh, mitigating muscle damage to some degree. Um, and it actually seems to work pretty well. Like there are, there are eight studies, I believe, on ischemic preconditioning in a resistance training context so far. And like six of them have pretty unmitigatedly positive results. And the other two have like mixed results. So some of the measures are uh, pretty positive in favor of ischemic preconditioning and, and some are more neutral. Um, but yeah, so, so overall, like that seems like a really promising area of the research. But then... Uh, you know, I, I think about it practically as a coach and I'm like, would I ever use this with any of my lifters? And the answer is no. Cause like, dude, you're training someone who has other things going on in life. Uh, oftentimes one of the challenges people run into is like, you know, to, to get in the level of training volume they need to keep making progress. Like their gym sessions, which used to be an hour, are now pushing an hour and a half, and that's like cutting into time with their kids or like time that they could spend studying or whatever else. Uh, and it's like, hey, buddy, now you need to show up to the gym an extra 30 minutes early so you can Suff put knee wraps <laughs> around your legs. Yeah, so you, so you can put knee wraps around your legs and just sit there for five minutes and then repeat that three times. Um, so it, it's, it's one of those things that is... Uh, academically very interesting and, and pretty promising. And, and I could see having applications in some like very niche things. So like, you know, for example, if you were doing um, like a squat reps competition in a strongman show or something, and you have 30 minutes of downtime before your flight is up, ischemic preconditioning very well could be a, a intervention that could help you eke out another two reps on the squat. Um, which, which, you know, could be the difference between a podium finish or not, but for just like day-to-day -day training applications, I don't think it serves any purpose whatsoever. Cause like who the fuck's going to do it, you know? Um, and so I don't know. I, I think that that's one of those things that most people could come up with if they thought about it for a second, but I, I've seen a lot of people getting 
very very excited about this like oh like this is this is a game changer it it more reliably improves strength endurance than even like well validated supplements like citrulline like oh people are going to be doing this and performing better and maybe they'll build more muscle and just like no they won't <laughs> and and if you actually trained people you would know that no one <laughs> that no one was actually going to do this yeah i think so anyway the very oh go ahead no sorry go go ahead no I, i've talked far too much now, so I, I think that the important thing that you really drive home, and this is coming from yourself as someone who has done grad, uh, went to grad school, done research, so kind of have like, yeah, so-called in the trenches experience of actually doing research. And obviously you are like a machine when it comes to consuming information and obviously disseminating them. So uh, it's coming from someone like that, right? Just boasting your credentials out there. Uh, just so people... Uh, can take your word seriously, but all I all I heard was that you were trying to get uh, PETA to <laughs> PETA Animal Rights Associate to, to protest against our podcast because you literally talk about cutting the, open dogs uh, and restricting yeah, open, their opening hearts. dogs. But yeah, but yeah, I think I think the big part is uh, when I think about science that science isn't really like like normative, right? It's very like mm-hmm. descriptive, you know. Like science tell you what is, right? It, it describes facts, right? So, or like, it tries to establish theories and uh, hopefully that, yeah, over time, yeah, becomes a fact if it's, like, undisputed uh, for a long period of time. And it doesn't, it tells you what is, but it doesn't tell you what someone ought to do, right? Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. It's, like, this method gives you X result, but putting it into certain context, like you said, uh, a strong man, uh, who have 30 minutes of rest could potentially do it, but for the rest of the population, it probably doesn't really uh, matter, right? And oh, I think an, that- another another great example of that, if I can just cut in, is, uh, dude, there's been so much research looking at, um, like, high-intensity interval training in uh, in people with, like, you know, obesity or pre-diabetes or, um, like, you know, general poor metabolic health. People are like, oh man, this this seems to reduce waist to hip ratio better than low intensity cardio and improve blood glucose to a greater degree. Um, like th- this is this is really this is really going to change the game from a public health perspective. It's like, dude, you're talking about fucking public health. Like there there are millions of people who need to get in better shape, and I'm not saying that there are zero people in the demographics I just described who want to do uh, multiple Wingate tests per week. I can tell you it's not, there aren't millions of them. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, that's another thing where like the, the research backing it is pretty strong, but then you think about practical mm-hmm. application and it's like, yeah, how, how are you going to convince people who currently do zero exercise to do what many people report to be, the most miserable exercise. <laughs> like that's, that's just not going to happen, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that that is kind of like uh, a good like segue into one of the questions I had in mind is like, what do you think uh, are like the limitations of science? Obviously, one you've kind of like uh, mentioned just now, right? Uh, and I've kind of talked a little bit, right? Uh, is that science kind of like tell you uh, what is happening, but it doesn't really say what you ought to do. So, uh, yeah, maybe you can share some of your thoughts. I mean, you've read probably 
uh, more research com- uh, than children and I combined. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, and I, maybe I even across two lifetimes. research at like a few years ago. So that's where I stopped actively trying to read. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, as someone who has like, put, like read a lot and obviously what do you think are some of the limitations of like science? Oh man. Um, is, is this just like the limits of the scientific method period or like the limits of say sports science in particular? I mean, it can be, I can, I, I guess it can be both. You can start more general from like the scientific method, then maybe go into sports science after that. Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I think l- limits of the scientific method. Um, well, first, I, I guess we just need to define what science is, um, because I don't think I don't think science exists as a as a single thing. Um, you know, like when, when someone who comes from like a biomedical research tradition, which like that's, that's what exercise science is. It's, it's built on the biomedical model. Uh, you know, we, we mostly think like, um, you know, hopefully you got some RCTs and if not, maybe you got some epidemiological research and like, you know, th- those are the scientific methods that we use. But that, that's going to look very different from what, say, like an astrophysicist would refer to as science. Like, you're not running RCTs on, on horse nebulas out there, out there in the deep reaches of space, you know? So, um, you know, their, their version of science is, seems to largely just come down to measurement precision. So, like, you have your cosmological theories and, what is the most precise and accurate measurement devices you can <laughs> you can develop to to measure you know down to the the width of an atom some shit that's happening forty billion miles away, um, which you know that that's not what we do. <laughs> um, I, so uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think first and foremost, it's it's worth recognizing that like science is uh sociological just as much as it is like a single fixed thing because i i would argue that it's not a single fixed thing um and so i I think like the first constraint of of science is probably just like the frailty of the human mind because like ultimately like there there have to be things that are discoverable are measurable um, that like, we just simply can't comprehend. Um, and like, I, I don't think we're to that point yet, but I, I think that it's all but a foregone conclusion that something like that probably does exist. And so I, I think, um, I, I, I think ultimately like we'll, we'll probably, you know, reach, reach a point where the, uh, where scientific progress slows down just because, the number of people who can understand the cutting edge of a lot of various fields are so few and far between. Um, and eventually like you'll, you'll reach the limits of, you know, their intelligence as well. And who knows, maybe, maybe computers will, will pick up the ball and run with it from there and we'll just have to hope that they're doing good stuff, uh, but not be able to understand it. So I, I think that that's, um, that will probably place a constraint on science eventually. Um, 
I think that I think that you can go in like several philosophical directions as well. So one of the things you already mentioned, Kedrick, is uh, like science is is primarily descriptive and you know, can you necessarily derive an alt from an is like you can measure what is going on, but you can't uh, necessarily tell people, you know, based on this objective data, we gathered how you're supposed to behave based on that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a limited tool from that perspective. Um, man, I remember a few years back when, uh, when Sam Harris was trying to play the moral philosophy game, just like mm. reading moral philosophers, just pulling their hair out uh, at how how naive his his uh, understanding of, of science was uh, and and its relation to to the alt is distinction. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's obviously a constraint. Um, and then. I think this partially relates to I, I think this partially relates to what I mentioned before about human intelligence, but but ultimately I think as well, um, science is probably constrained to some degree just by human imagination. Because ultimately we we research questions that we think to ask, but there must be questions that <laughs> we just don't think to ask. And therefore can't get answers to. Um, and w- one of the ideas that that I think is pretty powerful. And it, and so I, I might be about to contradict myself. One of the ideas I think is pretty powerful. Uh, and, and I picked this up from a book called. Sh- shouldn't have said that. I don't remember the name of it. No, I do. Where Good Ideas Come From by Stephen Johnson. Um, so w- one of the ideas he puts forth in that book is is the idea of the adjacent possible. That basically, um, you know, people people have this idea of like uh, like human knowledge sometimes progresses by leaps and bounds. And if you look back at history, it's like, oh, you know, we're we're sailing on ships guided by the wind, and then not too long later, like we have telephones and radios and stuff. Like, damn, that seems crazy. But when you look back at it, like ultimately. It, it tends to be just a, a series of like small progressions um, where, you know, someone discovers one little thing and then that opens the door for a couple other little things to be discovered. And then all of those things add up over time. Like basically it, it's the idea of like, once you get an answer, then you know what additional questions to ask. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think at least currently there are probably just an enormous number of questions to ask that we can't even think to ask yet because we don't have the requisite knowledge to know to ask them. Like we don't know that they're askable questions. Um, and so who, who knows? Like it, it could very well be that eventually humanity will, will exhaust the complete comprehensive list of all questions that are askable uh, and be able to sort them into ones that are researchable with science and ones that aren't. Um, but I'm, skeptical of that uh, i i do think that ultimately we'll we'll just be constrained by the limits of human imagination um yeah i mean yeah i think it's a it's from from not preparing for that question those <laughs> those are the things that immediately come to mind yeah i think 
um, there was a podcast, funny that you mentioned Sam Harris as well. I think he recently, oh, I say recent, it feels recent in my mind. He did, a, I think, a podcast with Neil deGrasse Tyson, I believe, um, an episode. I'm not too sure if you guys listened to that one. But one of the things that Neil mentioned was very interesting is that um, as, as Homo sapiens, you know, the, the idea is that we're only li- science and asking questions is only limited to what we can imagine right in in the future Mm -hmm. and then he goes and talk about imagine if we were looking at an ant and they were trying to discover science an ant might not even think about building a you know a 20 foot building (laughs) you know an ant will basically Mm -hmm. try to figure out the most cutting edge technology is to move this food from this nest to that nest in a very short amount of time and that's like their cutting edge technology mm-hmm. but for us it's like that's a car <laughs> you know and then he yeah. goes on to talk yeah. about imagine what it would be for science for like life which are not homo sapiens and they might look at us and say oh these guys are talking about um you know using using alternative fuel to fuel their cars but we basically just snap our fingers and we go from point a to point b in teleportation <laughs> you know it's a uh, that that's like primitive and i think you put it um very very nicely there great i think it's definitely limited to like human um the imagination and how much one person can tolerate and and like you said mm-hmm. um when you read a paper and there's a conclusion that then opens up doors and avenues for more questions based off the conclusion but then it also mm-hmm. comes down to i guess that idea where how many good scientists out there you know are willing to go that far because it really stretches your ability to not just come up with hypotheses but it's basically saying like oh this hypothesis i i I think this is true but it might just be like a figment of my imagination and i might not be able even to test it because it's so cutting edge Mm -hmm. like there's literally no scientific method for me to do this so i'm just gonna sort of let it sit and wait for the right time and sometimes I guess these great ideas or great discoveries just get lost in time. Well, I mean, what one other uh, <laughs> one other theoretical constraint, you know, many many years into the future is we could just be limited by human lifespans because, like, ultimately knowledge builds on itself. Um, and so, like, you know, for example, like before you learn algebra, you probably need to learn arithmetic. Uh, before you learn calculus, you probably need to learn algebra. Before you learn physics, you probably need to learn calculus. And then, you know, it, that extends out. And most of, like, the basics of a field you can you can pick up uh, in, in high school or undergrad. And then most of the advanced stuff at this point, you put in another six years to get your PhD. Like, you should be able to pick all of that up. And then you can start doing useful and novel research in your field. Um, But the thing is, like, it used to be a considerably shorter process uh, when, like, when the first encyclopedias were written, they were, um, like, theoretically contained, like, virtually all of the scientific knowledge that at least, like, Europeans had at the time. Uh, and you know, it was the type of thing where like you could sit it down in a month, like you could sit down for a month and read it and be like, okay, man on the planet. (laughs) I know it all (laughs) basically, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, the, the amount of 
human knowledge, both both period and within a specific field, um, is is increasing at an exponential rate. And so, you know, currently at, at this point in most fields, uh, if you've gone through the education process, by the time you're you're about, depending on the field, like between your mid twenties and your thirties, you will have put in enough time in a classroom to to pick up what you need to know to know where the boundaries of knowledge in a field are and hopefully to be able to uh, contribute new, useful, novel stuff, right? Um, but I mean, like, I don't think it's completely inconceivable that 50 years from now, you know, if, if you want to if you want to get to the furthest limits of a field and where knowledge in that field is currently, maybe instead of getting out of school and, like, finishing your PhD in your late 20s, like, Maybe you're pushing 40 um, and, you know, then, then you just have less total time that you that you have to, you know, make make novel contributions. to. That's your a field. really good. That's and a really good I, business idea, Greg. I should look to start a university um, and sort of grow it so that, you know, 20 to you know, basically 30 <laughs> years down the road when we're sort of pushing the boundaries of what you just said, you know, people will actually have to stay in college and university for, you know, a decade. And it's the norm. I see a lot of uh, potential there. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a, a completely unreasonable thing to foresee. I mean, I, I don't think people are going to be pushing their forties soon. Um, but I, I could I could very easily see, uh, you know, the the standard model of postgraduate education uh, progressing from, you know, like currently around six years on average to get a PhD to, you know, push that out to about 10. You're getting out around 32 instead of like 27. Um, and I, I mean, as, as we accumulate more and more knowledge, unless, unless there are like major breakthroughs in like neurology to where people can just download knowledge into their brains, like the, like the stormtroopers and, in, in star Wars, uh, you know, learning all of that additional stuff will will take additional time, you know? So I, I don't think that that's a completely implausible future to foresee where, where it just ends up taking so long to learn enough to contribute novel insights that, one, the, the number of people who can go that route gets smaller and smaller and smaller because currently the way society's constituted, like most people need to start earning an income sometime before their 40s uh and also like i feel like a lot of people just wouldn't have interest in going that route like speaking for myself personally like i could have applied to phd programs but i was like no i, d I don't want to be getting out of school that fucking late uh i i want to i want to get out and do other things um and so i mean i i can definitely imagine a future where like if going all the way through the educational process to to begin to start doing research if that did take people until their mid thirties instead of their late twenties, I, I could see that uh, disincentivizing people going that route, uh, which, which would slow down the pace of progress as well. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting when you were, when you were talking about this, I was just thinking about something. I was just having this conversation with, uh, with my girlfriend one day and we were talking about aliens, right? I mean, people mm -hmm. were always fascinated with, with aliens. Then she asked me, Oh, do you think aliens exist? Right. And I just said that, yeah, if I, if alien exists, aliens exist, I think that we won't find them. Like they will come to us and we will discover them. 
uh, simply due to the fact that if we assume right that like the galaxies are that are further away, right? Like Earth, mm-hmm. like the Milky Way is not like the it's not the only galaxy in the world, so they are like galaxies further away and well, like light years away, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which means that our galaxy is like probably like younger ish, and the aliens for us to travel to that galaxy is going to take ages, and we are barely like scratching the surface of space travel. But potentially, the galaxies from uh, from from light years away they potentially have already started like space travel towards our galaxy so we they mm-hmm. may they would like probably come into our galaxy and we may we may find them so it's like really interesting when you see cool big things are like constrained because if you blow it up into a big picture we can imagine like the galaxies that are light years away have already probably began like civilization ages before we've already done you know and they probably already have like space col- colonies in space all the way to earth so yeah that's just another one of my like science fictions Science fiction musing that I, I thought about, but it, it it is interesting, you know. Like even when we look at the exercise science field, uh, in general, I think that yourself, uh, and obviously with your colleagues, uh, are doing a fantastic job, like pioneering uh, open science, you know. And that's something I kind of like want to like talk about. Cause one, uh, as a PhD uh, student, I find the the journal uh, industry absolutely horrendous right that's one and uh not not just that but some of them like looking at predatory journals uh, obviously i'm biased because during doing the journal sweep from month to month uh nutrients give me a pain it's a huge pain in the butt like i don't understand how a company can publish 300 over journals in a month uh and they also most they also like charge for their journals so if they charge a thousand thousand dollars a journal that's three hundred thousand dollars a journal three hundred thousand a month that's absolutely ridiculous in my opinion especially when uh, i no... think they charge 1500 okay <laughs> so that's, so that's even yeah so it's absolutely ridiculous so you know if we talk about like how science uh exercise science in general is progressing uh, where would you see uh exercise science progressing in general because i with like the accessibility to like research reviews right mass who is probably like at the forefront now you know I know we have different different ones like uh, Weightology from James Krieger, uh, the ones Heredo uh, Research Review, uh, Research Review uh, by Alan Aragon, and all of that. You know, where do you see the progress of exercise science uh, is like? You know, in the future. Oh man, um, that's a good question. I. So I, I think that the um, I think the primary constraint on exercise science currently is is realistically just funding. Um, so so I think that um, I, so one one of the things I mentioned before is is the the process of science looks different field to field and the. You know, the types of questions being asked, the types of methods being used, etc. And currently, where we're at in exercise science is mostly we're just testing groups. Um, like the we're, we're testing, you know, two or three different interventions on two or three different groups and, and seeing what on average produces the best outcomes. I've been seeing more and more researchers um, be more and more open about reporting 
individual results and enter individual variability and, you know, maybe using like within subject unilateral designs looking for predictors of like why uh, some subjects may respond better to some like to one training protocol versus another. And, and I think that that's probably the next step. Um, I, I think that, I mean, at least on the training side of things, I can't think of a recent really big breakthrough, at least when it comes to like programming stuff where, you know, you find another variable and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is another thing we can tweak. And when we tweak it this way, it does produce on average substantially better results for the vast majority of people. Um, Like most of like the basic variables to be tweaked were, um, I mean, discovered probably in the trenches a long time ago and, and described in research uh, sometime between like the 50s and the 80s. So I, I don't know. I don't think that there's another, at least on the training side of things, I don't think there's another big paradigm shift to be had um, with our with our current research paradigm. I think the next step forward will be um, doing a better job of of describing and predicting inter-individual variability, both in terms of, of gross responses, but then also um, like what people will respond better or worse to. And, you know, cause, cause ultimately like practically in the trenches, as it were, when you're coaching someone, you're coaching that individual, you're not coaching uh, the demographic characteristics that you could use to describe them. You're coaching that person. Um, and so ultimately you're trying to figure out like what is the best way to train this individual? Like what will they respond best to? And, you know, so, so that's, <laughs> that's the question that like coaches are most interested in. And that's the question that most researchers are not interested in. Um, and so I think as far as like training prescription goes, I think things continuing to shift in the direction that they're shifting um, to get a better idea of of individualized training prescription, um, I think that's going to be pretty big. And like I said, I think one of the big constraints there is funding, um, because with so if you're looking for predictors of of who will respond better to one intervention versus another. Um, ultimately, ultimately you probably want to uh, be able to find like fairly, fairly clear signals. Um, and so like you ideally would, would want to look for variables where, you know, they're, they're very strongly predictive, you know, like our values of probably at least 0.7 plus give or take. Um, but since we don't know what those factors are yet, uh, the the research paradigm that would make the most sense to look for them is to just like collect a whole bunch of data, um, you know, either run two groups through through different uh, training protocols and and look for predictors of high versus low responders in both protocols, or use like a within subject unilateral design, separate the people who did better on protocol A versus protocol B and and look to see like what distinguishes people who did better on protocol A versus people who did better on protocol B. Uh, And so, you know, you you could collect 
data on like a lot of different physiological variables and, and look to see what's predictive. Yeah. But then ultimately you're, you're going to be discovering a lot of false positives because um, that, that's just kind of a shotgun approach. And then you would need to verify any predictors that you did discover. But to have much faith in those in those predictions, you would need pretty large samples. And for the first part of that process as well, to have to have any faith in like the precision of your correlation coefficients, you'd need pretty big samples as well. Um, like I, I definitely respect and appreciate people who are doing those types of studies now with samples of like 20 subjects or something. Um, but I ultimately think that there's not a ton of signal in the noise. Uh, and one of the reasons I think that is, uh, you know, less talking about individual training, like uh, individual training prescription and more just like pre- predictors of high versus low responders to resistance training. Um, there have been a lot of studies looking at that that have come up with like predictors of like, oh, what predicts who's going to grow a lot of muscle versus not? Mm. Um and there have been a lot of studies that have reported various predictors of of being a high responder. Um, and most of those studies report different predictors. So the the early stuff by uh, Petrella and Bauman found that like satellite cell and uh, myonuclei responses were were a really, really big factor. Um, subsequent research has failed to replicate that. Um, There've been there's been a study finding that like micro RNA responses were really strongly predictive of being a higher low responder. Future research has failed to to validate that. Um, one study found that uh, um, androgen receptor content responses were were uh, a pretty strong predictor. Future research has failed to validate that. Same thing with with ribosome responses. Although two studies have found that now, so who knows? Maybe maybe that's a good who one. Uh, but yeah, like the the difficulty that people have had to replicate those predictors, I think either speaks to the initial studies being under underpowered and just finding false positives, or the subsequent studies being underpowered and failing to validate things that should have been validated, you know? So, so currently that type of research with small samples, you're, you're shooting fish in a barrel. Um, and you know, (laughs) hopefully the, the dice fall in the right direction twice in a row and you say like, okay, now, now we've got some good predictors. Um, yeah, well, so like ultimately I I think that's, that's the direction we need to go. And I, I think to get there, we just need bigger samples and more funding mm. and that it's just not a high priority currently. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a very good point, Greg, especially sort of coming into science and, and looking at the future of it specifically, I guess, from a sports science perspective. And I'm sure we can talk a lot more about this and until the cows come home, but I'm sure at this point, our listener rate has probably dropped because let's be honest, not a lot of people like to be scientists, but um, to kind of close out, I suppose, and I would love you to potentially answer this in 10 words or less because, you know, I like to kind of really hone in on the core ideas. We want I kind of want to take it back to square one. In 10 words or less, what would you tell someone to do 
or what would you tell someone to think if they want to be involved in science? <laughs> ten words or less. Uh, I, I don't know if this is ten words or less, but talk to people who are currently researchers. That that would be the biggest thing. I, I think the 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 process of being interested in science and you know more more realistically for most people probably like headlines derived from scientific studies i think that is considerably different than being in the lab every day doing research uh the the the, the type of people who are um enchanted by science journalism and the type of people who want to be a professional researcher i think are often very different people so if you think you'd like to do research Talk to researchers, ask them what their day-to-day looks like. Uh, ask to maybe volunteer as a research assistant to get hands-on experience. Um, ultimately, I, I think that that will, will tell you more than anything else to, to see, you know, both if maybe you're cut out for it or not, or if, you know, it, <laughs> if it seems like a career path you would enjoy versus find completely soul-crushing. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic advice. I think that, I, I also don't think that, it's wrong for people to like say, cool, I'll just, I'll do a graduate, but I won't do a PhD like yourself. And I think that's fantastic coming from someone like you. And yeah, we, we do need good researchers out there. And I think people who are like not cut out for it or don't like it, but just do it for the sake of doing it won't produce good as good research as people who are truly invested and passionate about it. So that that piece of advice is really, really useful. And we really appreciate your time. So just before we close out, uh, for anyone else who is out there who or who don't know where to find you, uh, they must be living in like a huge rock. Uh, but let them know where they can find you and just plug all your products, right? I am going to be the first person to say that for all Subscribe listeners out there, uh, yeah, Greg's answer is actually wrong. Please subscribe to Mass. That's your first step. Uh, do that because it's fantastic. If you like exercise science research, uh, Mass is a inv- is basically invaluable. Right, you can't put a price tag on it. And uh, yeah, uh, other than that, let our listeners know where they can find you. Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, dear listeners, since you're currently listening to a podcast, I'm going to assume you like podcasts. So, if so, check out the Stronger by mm-hmm. Science podcast. I'm a frequent temporary guest co-host over there. Uh, the website is stronger by science. Uh, let's see if you want to, to join our community, uh, there's a stronger by science subreddit and uh, stronger by science community on Facebook. Those would probably be the best places to link up with us. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's about it. Right. Thank you so much, Greg, for your time. And for all our listeners, I hope you have found this episode, uh, beneficial it's a little bit more nuanced focusing on like specific intricacy of science and stuff but yeah if you like this please subscribe uh, on whatever platform you are listening slash watching whether it's spotify itunes or youtube and we hope to see all of you next time 